Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. In the pantheon of people with interesting lives, Salme Khalazad would have to figure uh, on that list. Born in Afghanistan, he became one of America's leading diplomats in Afghanistan, in Iraq, as UN ambassador at a very freighted time uh, in our history. I had a chance to sit down with him last week at the Institute of Politics to talk about that journey and about the royal world in which we live today. Ambassador, welcome. This is a bit of a homecoming for you here at the uh, University of Chicago. We're here at the Institute of Politics. You spent a number of years here getting your your doctorate. And one thing I wanted to mention to you is... uh, you wrote somewhere that your classmates here, having heard your story uh, of early life in Afghanistan, uh, calculated that it was a miracle that you had survived to that point. Why did they feel that way? What, what, tell me about your early years. Well, uh, thank you very much uh, for this opportunity. Sure. Uh, it's a delight to be back at the University of Chicago. Uh, Uh, This place had a profound impact on me and on my trajectory. With regard to the observation, uh, they had looked at uh, my friends uh, from the University of Chicago at that time at life expectancy uh, for uh, uh, an Afghan. And uh, uh, it was quite low in those days. uh, uh, And I had already exceeded and the uh, life expectancy of an average Afghan, so they called me a miracle person. You you actually lost a number of siblings uh, growing up. I did because uh, Afghanistan was very poor uh, when I was growing up. It still is poor, but uh, uh, I remember with a great deal of uh, pain still, it, uh, tears come to my eye when I think about it, uh, when my young sister uh, was wailing for days, uh, uh, she suffered, from, in retrospect, I judged to have, was appendicitis, and there was no doctor. The only person to, that could come to see her uh, was uh, uh, somewhere, uh, uh, a person who worked in a pharmacy. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I, um, she could have lived if, if there had been perhaps uh, a, a medical doctor, but there wasn't one, and she suffered so much. I mean, it's, she died, of course, but the the process that she went through until her death was extremely painful. These are uh, lessons you must have carried forward in your years in 
diplomacy and the State Department and some because these are things, these are fixable problems. There are problems that are hard to solve, right. but that is a problem that can be solved if you can get the resources into uh, into communities to uh, to upgrade medical care for for families like like yours. Right. Oh, absolutely. Uh, of course, uh, uh, when I came to America for the first time when I was 15 years old, yeah, and I saw the difference. It raised questions in my mind about why uh, it was so different here. And uh, so difficult uh, in Afghanistan. And was there something wrong? It raised even questions about uh, us as Afghans at that time as individuals. Were we less bright? Were we? Uh, and then I came to a judgment no. When I went to classes here mm-hmm. uh, in high school in California. And then it raised questions about political organization. Maybe I thought the systems made a big difference. Uh, And societies, our societies were organized, civil society. And all of that experiences impacted me when I had the great honor of representing the United States and helping um, places like Afghanistan uh, to to do better uh, in terms of providing the kind of uh, services, uh, opportunities uh, uh, that exist here, at least to put them yeah. on the trajectory uh, uh, to, to a better future. I, I want to ask you about that trip to America, but first I want to ask you about your parents. You wrote about your parents in your autobiography, and uh, you, theirs was sort of a traditional arranged marriage. Right. Uh, and your mom was a child right. when, uh, when, so really, faced with these kinds of challenges, probably not well fortified to deal with your, the illnesses and all of the, all of the difficulties that your family faced. Yeah, well... Uh, how, old was your, how old were your folks when, you, when they got married? Well, my uh, mother was 13, and uh, uh, my father was... Uh, six years older than her. And uh, my mother had her first child uh, within a year. She had um, uh, 13 children. Uh, Six did not survive. Uh, Most uh, of the uh, the six died before they were five. Uh, uh, I was uh, for a while the only boy. and I have a hole in the I see. Uh, uh, and that was... Uh, let me stipulate for our podcast <laughs> listeners that he, 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 the ambassador has a hole in his earlobe. Earlobe. And there was a ring put in there uh, uh, because uh, they, they believe traditionally uh, that by putting a ring and dedicating me uh, to uh, one of the saints uh, that they believed in, I would have better prospects of living uh, a longer life. Uh, and 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 uh, because two other boys before me that my parents had both had died, mm-hmm. uh, so it's, uh, it was a, it was a very very difficult situation. You um, you mentioned coming to the U.S. when you were fifteen. That was a, a program of the American Field Service. 
which was an organization that was started by volunteer ambulance drivers right. in World War One uh, and World War Two, right. uh, on the theory that if people, uh, if we we had exchange programs, cultural exchange programs, education exchange programs, that it would reduce the prospect of of conflict. Right. So how how did you come to be selected for that? Well, I was a good student. Uh, I was uh, uh, number one in terms of my grade average in my class uh, as a a sophomore. And when I was a a junior from the high schools uh, in Kabul, the capital of Afghanistan, uh, the top uh, three students from the great, uh, big high schools were uh, candidates automatically for getting an AFS scholarship. And then one went through an interview program. There was written exams and an interview program. And I was told that I was uh, one of those selected. And were you, uh, did you spoke English at the time? Uh, uh, very little, I did. Uh, uh, um, and uh, part of the oral examination was to uh, determine your language, English language abilities. And I had enough that they thought I could. Uh, and you I wanted could. to go. I Very much so. Uh, I didn't know a lot about America except what uh, I heard on the radio and the news. That we didn't have a TV at that time. This is 1966, 67 mm-hmm. period. And about the movies, uh, those were the two mm-hmm. uh, uh, means by which I knew something about America. Mm-hmm. Did you have a sense that there was something something better, something different, something that could expand your horizons there? Oh, definitely. And I, that also, this is something glamorous, something that, uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. kind of the image of Hollywood, uh, uh, these t- uh, movies. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I was an addict of going to movie theaters. We had one uh, in... Uh, Mazar Sharif in the north, and then Kabul, several of them, and so I was uh, I was very excited. I had uh, lived most of my earlier period in the smaller town in the north of Afghanistan. Then I just come to Kabul a year earlier, and now to uh, to. And where to, did to you go, go in in California? I went to a small place in San Joaquin Valley near Modesto, the Gallo wine area, uh, called Ceres, uh, and I lived with a. A, a great family, the, the Paris, and they adopted me as one of their uh, kids. I called them, uh, the mother, mother, a mom, and the father, dad, and uh, I had uh, uh, two boys, brothers, uh, that uh, I lived with them. The, they, they, were, they had a daughter who had married by the time I, I made it to series. And, and uh, you were there for a year? I was there for a year. And, and how did you feel going back? How, how, how did it... How, how did you orient yourself to returning to Afghanistan, having had that experience? It was with mixed emotions. I had uh, developed, uh, uh, you know, strong bonds and relationships. Uh, I had a girlfriend. Uh, you know, normal. The hard, the hardest, the hardest part. <laughs> uh, so here I had to go back, uh, and uh, but I also was uh, excited uh, to see my parents and to tell the stories of what I had learned, what America was like, what living in series was like, what going to school was like, because, uh, you know, the schools in Afghanistan 
high schools were segregated, boys and girls, you know, a lot of uh, things to tell my friends of my age as to uh, what was uh, uh, America like. But then when I got there, uh, I had a hard time uh, communicating well because half of what I would want to say came out in English and they were <laughs> teasing me about how I was showing off. Uh, and, uh, but you know, it took me a while to adjust back to the circumstances of Afghanistan. And then you went to the American University in Beirut. Right. What, what made you do, uh, decide to do that? Well, that was uh, also through a scholarship uh, program, again, an American uh, scholarship program the uh, USAID gave in those days, uh, scholarships to students from developing countries, uh, and they sent them to institutions closer to uh, where they were rather than bringing them all the way to America. And uh, the American University of Beirut also made a huge impact on me. I learned a great deal uh, about uh, the Middle East uh, that I didn't know about. Uh, this was uh, Beirut as a fulcrum of various trends uh, in the Arab world. Uh, it was a very tolerant place, uh, open to uh, all kinds of influences and ideas. And I became a great fan of American uh, universities abroad. You know, I had the, I uh, did a podcast like this with Steve Kerr, yes. who is the coach of the Golden State Warriors, uh, and I, his father, Malcolm. I knew his father, yes. Uh, who tragically was, was killed. Assa assassinated yeah. Yeah, yeah. In, uh, when he became president of the American University in Beirut. Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, uh, as I said, the impact was so great uh, on me that when I was uh, our ambassador to Afghanistan and Iraq. In each, I used some of uh, the resources that I had uh, uh, on behalf of the American people to establish an American University of Afghanistan and an American University of Iraq where thousands are now uh, are studying, particularly important for young women from those countries because parents tend to be more reluctant to send their daughters abroad. Huge for, issue. Uh, and, yeah. and I think now in both uh, universities uh, that are in Afghanistan, almost 40% of the university students at the American University uh, are girls and young women. You know, um, I, I feel like I want to make this point. Um, you, as we'll discuss in a second, became a great asset to the United States, uh, but and also, in some ways, Afghanistan and, and the service that you uh, provided there. But um, this notion of providing the opportunity for people to get an education, women, and you mentioned women in particular, which is a particular uh, problem and challenge um, in that part of the world, um, it seems like an enormously good investment. Oh. It seems like... We, we ought to make that a real priority. Um, you know, I feel that way about foreign aid generally, that it is, the, it is a very cheap way of uh, building uh, bridges of understanding, of uh, avoiding conflict in just the way that the American Field Service uh, founders hoped when they created the program that brought you uh, to America, and yet there's such uh, skepticism 
among you know you hear all the time well, we don't want we don't want to waste money on foreign aid that seems like the most valuable investment we could make well i completely agree that uh, education uh, in particular american style liberal education uh, that for example the university of chicago is, is one of the great examples to offer is uh, extremely important it opens the mind critical thinking, uh, uh, agility in problem-solving. Uh, it, it's, 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 it's great asset, it, it's opportunities for us uh, uh, when, uh, as a result of education, countries prosper more, uh, they develop. Uh, it, uh, not only it avoids, especially if they become democratic, also in the process, conflict, because democracies tend to, uh, less likely to go to war against each other, but also economic opportunities, yeah. uh, cultural uh, interaction opportunities. But on the development side, generally, I agree with you uh, fundamentally, although we need to be... Um, uh, better at, and I can say that based on my experience in two uh, countries, Iraq and Afghanistan, where we invested a lot of, uh, we put a lot of resources in, uh, we need to uh, be better at how to use those resources more effectively. Uh, our institutions need to be reformed, how to do development better. Mm -hmm. We do great in terms of humanitarian assistance. Yes to save lives. But when it comes, how do you get a country like Afghanistan or a country like Iraq to become a free market, right. uh, a thriving economy, our institutions- And to build civil so society. And to build yeah. civil society, yeah. encourage political parties, um, from civil societies to parties. We're not as, 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 as effective, as good as we, in my judgment, can be. And in my book, I try to offer some uh, lessons based on my experience because our institutions have become essentially contract managers because we have privatized a lot of uh, 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 development activities. Uh, but we don't have a good theory of what needs to happen first in order for a, a, a country or a society to become successful economically, what happens second, what happens third. Uh, but uh, we give contracts, you go build schools, we get contracts, go build clinics, uh, not informed often by, by, a, by, by, by a strategy, a strategy no. that is well-founded uh, and based on, on, on a lot of data. Uh, and so I think that's where we need to take another look at, are we well-organized to do development? Uh, and we must, and we should, in my view. But uh, but uh, that's what uh, what is needed. Yeah, um, I don't want to. I don't want to lose the thread of your story. But but implicit in your answer is that we have a big investment in promoting uh, democracy. I know that's something that you uh, you believe. We live in a time when liberal democracies are are being ch challenged uh, in many different ways. It feels as if. Um, authoritarian impulses are taking root. We see it in Europe. We see it elsewhere. Um, and uh, how concerned are you about uh, this trend? And uh, do you think that this is a, a long-term challenge? Well, I'm very concerned, number one, and what you say is absolutely right. 
and uh, it is uh, uh, a long-term challenge. There is the rise of nationalism, there is the rise of authoritarianism, and the mix of the two. And uh, we, uh, I need, uh, I believe, need to again uh, rethink and reform our democracy promotion uh, or support. Uh, 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 concept, strategy, and plans. Um, uh, democracy in some transition countries have underperformed uh, uh, in terms of uh, providing for security, in terms of providing uh, for uh, economic development while minimizing corruption. Uh, in both Iraq and Afghanistan that I know quite well, uh, our effort to build a democracy came in the context of a huge struggle f uh, on this in, in terms of the security front. And also corruption uh, uh, increased uh, dramatically because one of the instruments that we use when we go to war in the American style of war is we throw many at problems. Uh, that's one of the weapons, our weapons. And, and uh, I think uh, some uh, people who are against democracy have used uh, uh, the insecurity and corruption to attack uh, the very concept of what a democracy for some places uh, in particular circumstances or the right approach or whether you get more security uh, if you lived in an authoritarian society. Yes. And because this, uh, even our, some of our friends in the Middle East uh, who feared the success of democracy in Iraq, that this could be contagious and spread, yeah. they were also... Uh, That's a uh, dilemma, uh, isn't it? A, a, a significant dilemma. But I think while... Uh, minimizing and uh, reforming, uh, minimizing the, the, the problems by the, uh, rethinking how uh, this can be done more effectively. Uh, we, uh, uh, I, I continue to believe that democracy among the, all the alternatives are, is, is the best uh, form, uh, that it, it's not easy, it uh, takes effort, it's, there, it's not gonna be a straight line, there is gonna be setbacks and uh, you need to adjust. Uh, to succeed, uh, and, and, and there are things we need to do better. Uh, I'll give you a quick example. For example, in Iraq, we spend every month, when I was ambassador, billions uh, on military uh, side. But we had a lot of civil society groups that uh, we encouraged. But when it came to political parties uh, and elections, which we th insisted on as soon as possible, uh, the neighbors who were supporting Islamist uh, parties, you will be surprised if I told you that I didn't have a penny to support uh, liberal uh, democratic parties because uh, we used to do it at the beginning of the Cold War with European uh, democracy, democratic parties, but then we made some mistakes and then a law was passed that we shall not interfere in elections. And that has been interpreted uh, that we cannot support democratic parties financially uh, to have a level playing field to compete with others. 
and you have to do a finding you've served in the White mm -hmm. House in order to do that. And a finding has to be briefed to several members of Congress. And that immediately gets leaked and it defeats uh, the purpose because the agency through which you can do that is uh, an intelligence agency. Yeah. These are fraud issues. I mean, we live in a time when interference in elections has become a very big Big issue. issue. We need to think that through. How do we... Uh, in helping uh, encourage democracy, dem uh, democratic political systems, means uh, bring about level playing fields f uh, f for uh, liberal Democrats, uh, for a democratic movement, while author authoritarian systems, yeah. Islamist systems, authoritarian Islamist system, uh, would have ways to interfere. And now with, uh, with the digitization of the world, uh, kind of cyber has become also a, a yeah. space and instrument in this regard that we saw in our own elections. Uh, of inflammation, yeah. Right. You know, the other thing I wonder about is um, how democracy functions and competes alongside uh, sectarianism of the sort that we've seen in the Middle East and can um, commitment to uh, democracy uh, overcome some, you know, these deep, deep sectarian uh, differences. You're a Sunni Muslim, and you, you you're attuned to, deeply attuned to the the, the you know, uh, enormous hostilities in that region uh, between um, Sunni and Shia in Iraq, uh, Kurds, Kurds and the Turks. I mean, it is a, it is, uh, th those seem to trump uh, these sort of nascent democratic impulses. Well, for a, for a time it does. Uh, these are phases that others have gone through. Think of the, uh, uh, of Europe uh, uh, during the Catholic Protestant Wars, the Thirty Years' Wars, that uh, uh, tore the European monarchies apart, and then they overcame it uh, through uh, an agreement on some rules, the Westphalia uh, system, the state system that uh, is now under challenge uh, uh, by sort of uh, newly rising powers who don't have the same conception uh, of the desirable order. Uh, is a post-Catholic Protestant war uh, product between Catholic and Protestant monarch. So, uh, yes, uh, in, a, in the age of sectarianism in the Islamic world uh, and the age of rise of ethnicity, ethnic politics, uh, promoting uh, and uh, building democratic order even by local democrats face greater challenges that uh, if those were not as powerful uh, as, as they are at the present time but history would tell us that even those can be overcome over time that the, you have to persist uh, and and uh, uh, i believe that i'm a strong believer as given my own background and that no religion, no ethnic group, no race is destined uh, uh, not to become democratic for those reasons. Uh, and so therefore, it's the kind of where you are 
uh, in the evolution in terms of all the other issues and uh, are you being you know who's being helped even sectarianism uh, while it's a force it is being fanned by as part of geopolitical rivalry right. that's an instrument there are that tools Iran, to, there uh, are tools to fan it now as you point out that are much more powerful than we've seen in the past because of technology because exactly. of social media and so on that 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 raises an, a, a new challenge uh, in this and and, and, a, and a new opportunity and yes. we need to adjust to to, to both uh, and yeah. and uh, i think we fail we face challenges at home uh, from these changes Without in technology. Question. Famously, famously, as yes. you say, and yes. we and and and, and technology offers uh, digital technology opportunity for inclusive economic development for helping millions of poor who are not part of the formal economy in the world. Uh, but yet, who owns the data? Uh, even in those countries, how could the people who produce the data benef- should benefit from it? Mm-hmm. Uh, these are uh, yes. huge issues welcome here. to the 21st century. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so you were involved in, uh, you, when, when you left the University of Chicago, you taught at Columbia, you, you went to the State Department uh, during the, uh, uh, the Reagan and Bush years. You were involved uh, in two of the most uh, hotly debated decisions uh, of the of the uh, 80s uh, and the 2000s, so the 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 first was to uh, to uh, secretly arm the Mujahideen uh, resistance to the Soviets in uh, Afghanistan, um, and uh, that became controversial because that became the roots of uh, what would be the reactionary forces that we ended up having to contend with uh, there. Um, any, what are your reflections looking backward right. on that decision? Well, I think uh, uh, when uh, the Soviets invaded Afghanistan, uh, uh, I was actually still at the University of Chicago <laughs> when it happened on my way to Columbia. We, uh, the United States, uh, under the Carter administration and then continued under Reagan, came to a judgment uh, that uh, we need to uh, confront the Soviets for this uh, aggression. And there was an assumption uh, at that time. How did you personally feel about that, by the way? Well, I... I, You you still have family there. I had family there. In fact, I began to write initially under a pseudonym in the New York Times and the Washington Post commenting on what was going on because I had family there. You were afraid that they would be affected. They would be affected, but then we uh, got them out. But I was uh, obviously very much personally uh, concerned and and, and Mm -hmm. influenced. But we made an assumption about the the future of the Soviet invasion in Afghanistan that was reasonable... uh, and since we are at the University of Chicago, it's very important to question always your assumption. But we made an assumption that was reasonable, but turned out to be wrong. What the, the, that assumption was that given the size of the Soviet Union and the size of Afghanistan, given uh, the uh, history of how Soviet Union used force when a neighboring state became pro-Soviet, uh, which was that once you join the Soviet bloc, there's no way out. The Brezhnev Doctrine was dominant. So we assumed that the Soviets would ultimately prevail in Afghanistan. As I said, it was reasonable, 
But the Soviets did not prevail. But the, the, the effect of that assumption was that we didn't think about a post-Soviet Afghanistan uh, because we didn't think there would be a post-Soviet Afghanistan. And what we did, we assisted any and all groups who wanted to go and fight. And those who fought the hardest, we assisted the most. And those were mostly Islamist forces. Now, the lesson is... Uh, In including... Uh Osama bin Laden. I don't know whether we directly helped. No, no, but he was. Yeah, but he was there, and yes. we were aware of. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and in fact, we encouraged even Arabs to come mm -hmm. and fight because the Osama was not an Afghan; he was an Arab, right. uh, and and we wanted to see a cost that the Soviets would pay vis-a-vis -vis the Muslim world, the Arab world, in terms of what they were doing uh, to their brethren, Muslim brethren in Afghanistan, but. That uh, uh, assumption that they would prevail uh, was at the root of it. Imagine if we had assumed that, no, the Soviets might withdraw and there could be a post-Soviet Afghanistan, maybe we would have been more selective. Uh, now, I, some people have argued that regardless of the cost that we have paid since, the damage that we did to the Soviet Union, which it, uh, may have contributed that mired there and may have contributed to the destruction mm -hmm. of the Soviet Union, uh, Union maybe uh, would have been worth it uh, still. I am of the view that, uh, and I argued actually, I don't want to kind of praise my own uh, uh, record on this uh, when I was there in the government, uh, mm -hmm. and this included some of our most brilliant Sovietologists that assumed that, uh, mm -hmm. uh, and people like Zbik Brzezinski, God bless him, uh, who said, Zal, don't waste your time about the post-Soviet Afghanistan. There would be no post-Soviet Afghanistan because of the experience of Poland right. and other places. That Why are we assuming that the, 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 the Soviets uh, would then have to prevail? So that's a lesson that I take away, that always uh, uh, question uh, your assumptions. Uh, prepare for alternatives, uh, plans uh, when they meet reality uh, don't work. Had others uh, are not billiard ball, they are human beings, institutions, they can adjust, they can change. So this, uh, the complexity is what I take away from that experience. The second big decision was you were in the Bush administration during the decision to uh, invade Iraq. I read, uh, you know, I did a... Uh, uh, a podcast, a TV show, one of my TV shows with Condoleezza Rice, who is a, a friend of yours. Uh, and is. she wrote in that book about uh, the fact that you were working hard to try and um, develop uh, relationships and build bridges between the various factions in Iraq. And she was, you had a project going that she wanted uh, the administration to embrace and encourage uh, that got uh, stopped. Um, I, I, ra I raise that as a prelude to this question. Um, I'm not even going to ask you the big question, which was whether we should have gone in in the first place. But my question is, what went wrong? Well, if, if we could put aside uh, the question of whether we should have gone in or well, not. Well, now that you, I mean, <laughs> do, should we have, I guess, Well, I thought, I okay. thought uh, uh, that... Uh, Myself, because I was at the same time that Iraq was going on, I was the president's envoy for Afghanistan. Yes. Uh, and and uh, the timing uh, I was most concerned about because I was... Uh, you wanted the resources uh, devoted uh, to Afghanistan. And I, did, I, I personally couldn't be as attentive to my responsibility 
as the president the envoy uh, with Afghanistan, as I was being constantly also uh, asked to do things such as what uh, you referred to as Kandi to get the Iraqis mm-hmm. uh, to come together on a vision for the future should there be a change, should we invade uh, Iraq. Uh, so the, uh, uh, I do not believe that the president, uh, President Bush, uh, told the intelligence community to make up the intelligence uh, with regard to Iraqi WMD. Uh, and uh, 9-11 had a big effect on the, uh, the attitude that uh, if important problems are percolating, they could uh, become even faster and become bigger, mm-hmm. so you better deal with it in a timely manner. And Tony Blair had a huge impact on President Bush by presenting this proposition and therefore that Iraq had to be dealt with. Uh, But uh, 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 putting that aside on the debate that the fights internally we had, whether we needed to do it uh, right then um, or uh, let's get Afghanistan in a better place and then if Iraq has not... That was your attitude. That's what uh, what mine. But that uh, the, the... big mistake that we made in Iraq, in my view, was what we did after the invasion. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a plan. I mean, a lot of people say there was no plan for what to do afterwards. Uh, uh, wrong. There was a plan. The mistake was we abandoned the plan and went in a different direction. Uh, and to this day, it's not clear why that happened, in which meeting that was decided, who was advocating for it and where were the principals advising the president so uh, just so just uh kind uh, elaborate a little bit on sure. what the two yeah. divergent paths were one path was that as soon as we go as in afghanistan we would uh, based on what the work i had done uh, and based on my experience in putting a government together in afghanistan after we went there that we would do that that we would put a gov- iraqi government will keep the iraqi army uh, reform right. it and they will uh, manage security the iraqi army and this iraqi government uh, with our help will um, take responsibility uh, uh, but Instead, what the we, army was dispatched. Yeah, the army was disbanded. We declared ourselves as the occupying power. We appoint someone from Washington to go run Iraq. And he, Paul Bremer. Uh, Paul Bremer. And he makes these decisions. And if you ask uh, Secretary Powell, uh, uh, Secretary Rice, uh, uh, National Security Advisor at that time, and you ask... The vice president, you, call, you asked Secretary of Defense uh, Rumsfeld, w- w- with all of whom I've sp- spoke with for my book, uh, The Envoy, as to in what meeting was this discussed to dissolve the army? And what were the pros and cons that were being debated? No one recalls it. That's astonishing. I, I have uh, concluded that they did not serve the country well by not having a serious multi-meetings, not one, as to deliberate on this. We had deliberated for months before with briefings that you, I mean, you've been in government. Yes, yes. The Pentagon is one thing that it's good at. Among they other have a lot things. of meetings. A lot yes. of meetings, a lot yes. of slides. Yes. All right, so, so therefore, all of that was done and boom, uh, you're putting all of that aside, uh, dissolve the army, get 500,000 people who know how to use armed, 
You don't even pay their salaries. They are people of, they have respect in their communities. They are important people. And all of a sudden, they can't support their families. They can't feed them. They have lost their position in society. And on top of that, you do it as if you, we were in Nazi Germany. We do a deep debatification uh, affecting another several hundred thousand uh, people uh, negatively. Uh, so we create circumstances for a huge problem that uh, we Is it your sense that Bremer made these decisions on his own? Well, that's what uh, 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 the president said when he was asked, President Bush, uh, as to what happened. Uh, Willie said the plan was to to, uh, keep the Iraqi army. Uh, uh, Then he was asked, then what happened? He said, well, uh, I don't know, ask Steve Hadley. I mean, that's what (laughs) was his national security advisor. No, I have great respect for President Bush. Uh, he, he honored me with the opportunities he gave me, uh, and I, he was a, 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 he's a great American, but I think he wasn't served well by... by, by, by uh, you were, you were the guy him. on the ground. Yes. You were the guy they sent in to commune with people on the ground. Yeah. And I went There's... inside Iraq before the invasion. Uh, you know, I, the government put a lot of effort to get me safely in and out of Iraq, and almost like a James Bondy type of operation that I would land at 4 a.m. Uh, in different places and meet with local leaders. And, uh, and I made a commitment on behalf of the United States to these people that we will not govern you. This is not a colonial project. We have a limited interest that we are coming here for, which is we think Saddam Hussein has WMD and we are afraid that he might use them. And then after all these commitments, public commitments, I gave a speech to a group of them uh, that the uh, Wall Street Journal printed uh, verbatim uh, on its op-ed page in which I said, uh, we, w- we do not want to rule you. I said, let me repeat, we don't want to govern you. We want to facilitate for so you to So did you feel yourself. personally betrayed by that decision? Oh, I was very disappointed because, and even that process of that decision, the, uh, the, the book documents it very well, which is that Ambassador Bremer and I were both supposed to go. He was going to be a presidential envoy for uh, making the trains run. And I was going to be the presidential envoy for make, getting a government organized very quickly. But then at the very last minute, again, uh, Colin Powell called me when the decision was made that only uh, Bremer run, would go. You got run over by the trains. By the, by, by the <laughs> yeah, trains, exactly yeah. right. Yes. So uh, here is the Secretary of State. He called me said, Zal, what deleted happened? <laughs> and uh, I, I said, I even joked with him. I said, yeah, Colin, you're the Secretary of State. You're calling a staffer to find out what happened. <laughs> so yeah. it was, uh, that, that was not our finest hour. I think it, perhaps the war initially went too uh, easy f- compared to what people expected. And there all, we became a little... Uh, hubris. Hubris. Mm-hmm. We can do anything. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think that uh, diminished a sharp focus on analyzing, calculating intended consequences, unintended consequences of what you are going to What do you think when you, what, what do you see now, where, all these years later, uh, as you look at Iraq, you look at Syria, 
Um, how do you assess the region? Well, the region is obviously in turmoil. Uh, it's going through uh, one of the uh, worst phases in its turbulent history. If you guys had gotten that right in the first instance, would we be in a different position now? Oh, no doubt that we would be. Uh, that doesn't mean there wouldn't be problems. But uh, I think uh, 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 an Iraq that was stable, uh, a force for good, uh, not a, and a, a, a zone of contestation, which it has become between the Sunni Arab world, the Shia Iran, the Turks, uh, uh, and then with the, with the uh, opportunities that that contestation and that struggle, without coming to some accommodation with each other and some rules of the game, uh, has provided uh, ungoverned spaces uh, and, and conditions in which extremism uh, grew. Uh, and and uh, my concern right now with Iraq is that we defeated uh, al-Qaeda in Iraq, which was a big problem when I was ambassador there. We tried to put a government of national unity together. And uh, uh, extremists, uh, terrorists were trying to pull Iraq apart to defeat uh, um, uh, us by defeating the, 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 uh, through the politicization and taking advantage of the sectarian fault line mm-hmm. as, for that order that we wanted to Iraqis to have not to, to succeed. Whether what happened after the defeat of, of uh, al-Qaeda in Iraq, which we did, whether that will be repeated, uh, which is go back to extremism, we disengage, uh, and then the, the fight among ethnic groups or sectarian groups starts. And another group, ISIS is a, the son of al-Qaeda in Iraq, and whether we'll have the son of ISIS come back uh, or whether the Iraqis have learned the lesson uh, that uh, not to repeat the cycle that we saw before. And I'm... Uh, I'm I'm uh, hopeful that uh, they've learned the lesson. You mentioned the Turks. You, you uh, one of one one thing that you've spoken about, written about, is that when you went to the American University in Beirut, um, you you made study of Turkey and Ataturk and the kind of secular democracy that he, or secular uh, administration that he uh, developed there. We see. Uh, something different now, um, and uh, I'm wondering how you assess what's going on in Turkey, where there seems to be uh, an Islamification of government right. uh, for uh, f- to strengthen the. Sure. Well, uh, in the crisis of Islamic civilization, as I call it. And there is a, a, a question that uh, Muslims in that region in particular have asked themselves that we used to be great. We were dominant. We were successful. We were ruling parts of Europe. Uh, uh, and now we've declined. Uh, with, uh, we're not as economically successful, not as technologically education and so on. What happened? What went wrong and what should be done about it? What should be done about it? The, the question Lenin asked what uh, sort of two. And one answer has been that you have to copy successful c- countries. Separation of church and state, uh, uh, economic uh, uh, free market economy, rule of law, and all the uh, attributes of successful societies. 
that's one reaction that we have to imitate the successful one. The other extreme has been, no, the reason we are not doing well is because we abandon the true faith. That the closer we are to the prophet's time, then we were successful, so we have to go bring back the Sharia uh, and, and, and become more pure uh, Islamist. And to uh, struggle a permanent war, they believe, between the believers and the non-believers. That's kind of the alternative model. And Turkey uh, embraced secularism, uh, and uh, some of the others have embraced other uh, mixes. And now, unfortunately, in the case of Turkey, there is a resurgence of a shift uh, towards Islam, and Ataturk in, uh, as a kind of legacy is being undermined by Mr. Erdogan. Uh, uh, that's a mix of Islam and a kind of personal authoritarianism, a personal... Uh, 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 he's, believed he's a charismatic leader, great orator, uh, is using those skills to establish a more Islamic, uh, new, a more, a more authoritarian, more authoritarian, a new Ottoman. Almost is not only his, his ambition is not limited to Turkey, uh, for Turkey to uh, make Turkey great again. To borrow from, yes, and make Turkey great again is not only a bit of, uh, of more Islam uh, in politics, but also uh, m more Turkey in the world and the region. What are the implications for the U.S. in that? Huge, uh, huge. Because I think we have swing states in our country. You've done domestic yes. politics uh, that matter a lot. I think we have swing states internationally too. And Turkey is, uh, in my has judgment, been, yeah. uh, has been such a state. So uh, we need to be very smart uh, and careful uh, not to uh, lose Turkey. To, to a hostile camp, whether it's uh, with, uh, with the Iranians or with the Russians. Or a combination. Uh, or a combination. And uh, uh, um, I think we've made some mistakes uh, in dealing with Turkey, uh, with, whether it's with regard to Syria or even with regard to uh, Iraq, with regard to, uh, to the relationship. We need to hedge. We need to have a complex Kind of strategy. I mean, one of the complications yeah. is that yeah. we've been uh, relying on the Kurds to help turn back the ISIS threat, and the and Turkey is obviously uh, views this with suspicion. Understandably, in that regard, because the groups that uh, we have been working with have been uh, part of the PKK, which mm -hmm. uh, PKK has been uh, a terrorist uh, group. We regard, have regarded them as a terrorist group uh, in Turkey. They've killed a lot of Turks. Uh, while the issue of Kurds in that region is uh, one of the terrible legacy of the colonial era. I mean, these are borders that were drawn by Brits and French. Uh, uh, um, I used to tease my British counterparts in Iraq and Afghanistan that our mission has, be, has become to go around the world and fix the messes you left behind for us. Uh, so, uh, but uh, uh, um, but uh, we um, should have uh, pushed the Turks to come up with a better option in dealing with ISIS if the Kurds was going to be such a neural, neural, working with the Kurds uh, was going to be this uh, neural, 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 or difficult for them. 
And when now we are where we are, uh, we have developed a good relationship with these Kurds. Our military, especially CENTCOM, has developed uh, kind of with the fighters uh, a very mutually respectful and positive relationship. Um, I'm, we've got to think about options as to how to uh, preclude or minimize the risk of a break uh, with Turkey uh, and, and uh, uh, how we... I mean, we face the same challenge with Putin. Uh, mm -hmm. I, you know, what? How do you, uh, can, in the case of Putin, uh, avoid the war uh, with them? Uh, on this, on this issue of these fraught relationships, you're an institutionalist. Um, you were ambassador to the UN. That was the last post you held in the Bush administration. Uh, how do you assess this president's approach to national security and foreign policy? And what challenges does it pose for our allies and our adversaries around the world? Well, I think on the positive side, I think uh, 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 the, the new president uh, being a disruptor to raise questions, raise issues that we know have been there for a while uh, or their new approaches to deal with them. We know that burden sharing among allies, for example, has been a, a significant issue. Uh, European allies uh, are not uh, doing uh, their fair share in terms of uh, confronting the challenges that we face and given our own domestic needs, uh, and uh, the challenges that we face mm -hmm. in Asia uh, with the rise of China, uh, with the change in the economic balance of power and the military balance of power there, that alone with the burden sharing the way it has been, the United States uh, and we cannot meet our obligations over time in, in those theaters. So and there, doing more burden sharing and perhaps... And there's value to disruption. To there's no doubt that, as right. you say, you're, you're a University of Chicago man, right. so questioning yeah. old assumptions that, has, its, that was good. has its value. But disruption as a, as a constant state... And as a strategy, yes. as a tactic, it's good, but as a kind of a long-term strategy, is not. So uh, I was not uh, in agreement uh, with uh, Mr. Trump when he was a candidate, uh, and he asked me to introduce him to give his big foreign policy address, uh, and I did. And one of the issues that I raised with him was that I wasn't going to I would need an assurance that the uh, alliances <laughs> are seen as an asset at the end of the day, and that among a couple of other issues that I raised uh, with him before uh, before doing that, and also on the condition that I could also uh, introduce other candidates, that, that I would be open to doing that. But in any case, I think these alliances are extremely important. Uh, it's to our benefit. It's uh, to the benefit of the world. Uh, but... Uh, Yes, some uh, disruption. Uh, I, I think uh, the balance has moved in a positive direction from the uh, the, the campaign time on the uh, on with regard to the alliances that uh, uh, people like McMaster and Mattis and others have had a salutary effect. Uh, if you look Ma at the although McMaster is gone, now. yeah, he's gone. John Bolton was your predecessor at the right. UN. What yes. kind of impact do you think he'll have there? 
I was of the view that if the president wanted a strong advocate uh, for a point of view like like John is, he's a smart guy, a great advocate, uh, maybe he should have given him an institution uh, to run. Um, but because the national security advisor is a, a broker, a, a broker role, mm -hmm. and and uh, can a strong advocate be a good broker? Uh, um, we'll have to see. Uh, uh, you, that, you, uh, you, you spent two years cleaning up after him a little at the United Nations because there were some fraught relationships well, uh, there. Uh, do, you, do you see him as a conciliatory force between various competing Well, the interests? key role that he will have to play has to be to give the president uh, an honest uh, account of the views of the... Uh, uh, principles, uh, uh, Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, and others. Because there are two ways, one way uh, and two options. One way is to, with a strong belief of one's own, to paper uh, to uh, 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 over differences and say everybody's agreeing uh, to this point of view. But while in fact uh, there are very significant differences, and that can get a president a strategy in difficulty when the going gets uh, tough. Or to give him honest options that your defense department wants mm -hmm. this, your state department wants that. Knowing and, Bolton as you do, which path do you think he'll take? Well, I hope he takes the second path. <laughs> I didn't ask uh, you what you hoped. Yeah, uh, I asked you what you well, thought. Well, I hope he doesn't, uh, uh, what doesn't do the, the, the paper uh, uh, overing of differences and use the process for uh, for uh, advocacy uh, uh, that i think would not serve the president well on the issue of syria as we sit here and have this conversation the president has signaled earlier in the week on twitter that an attack was coming first of all was that wise to do that and secondly assuming that an attack goes forward uh, which now seems almost inevitable. Uh, what is the likely impact of that, and how much uh, will it further enmesh us in Syria? Well, I think the objective, if we do something, uh, must be uh, to uh, deter uh, the use of uh, chemical weapons against civilian population in Syria. Well, we and hit him once uh, last that year. That wasn't enough, uh, obviously, to do the job. So if we are to deter, it may require a much bigger effort, maybe a campaign that lasts several days uh, uh, to uh, convince uh, Bashar and his supporters that the use of chemical weapons is very risky. The dilemma is whether you can do that without, without involving the Russians. Uh, yeah, without uh, getting into a conflict or confrontation uh, with the Russians. And, and, and uh, I thought that uh, to, be, to give the president the benefit of the doubt that his uh, tweet might be uh, part of a game of chicken with Putin that says, we're coming, we're going to do this. Uh, I've thrown the steering wheel out of my car. Let's talk about, uh, uh, you know, something that uh, pre pre prevents or uh, avoids or precludes escalation. So maybe there is some 
shadow boxing or, or, or actual discussion going on on what would be uh, sufficient for us uh, to do and uh, does not risk that escalation. Or maybe he's thrown the steering wheel out of the car. He has, in my judgment, but that tweet uh, as, uh, as, as, uh, would indicate that in a, in a sort of what I learned at the University of Chicago is now the burden he has put by that on, on Putin. Mm-hmm. Would, he, would he respond uh, or would he uh, uh, work for a kind of strike uh, in which he could claim that some missiles were shot down, uh, that he, he, he's not entirely humiliated. You talked about um, your uh, discussions with the candidate Trump about introducing him. You must have felt something uh, about the targeting of Muslim Muslims as part of his campaign. Uh, did you talk to him at all about that? I did. I mean, I told him that uh, uh, one thing I didn't want him to do if he wanted me to introduce him was to attack Islam or Muslims uh, as a category. I, still, I said, I don't expect uh, Muslims or non-Muslims necessarily to be in love with Islam. It's up to each individual and their faith. And, their, but, and I have no problem attacking uh, terrorism and extremism as 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 huge problems uh, of the contemporary period. I have been in, uh, representing us in conflict uh, yes. with those forces, so I, I appreciate that. But you don't want to, even whatever kind of beliefs one has, but as potential president of the United States of America with global role with a country that's very diverse, to unite over a billion people against the United States by attacking their faith. Uh, and uh, and, uh, and I, I have to say that he, he, he went along, and he, in the, at least in the speech, he did not. Yes. What about in his policies with the travel ban and so on? Are these things counterproductive? Well, I think that uh, we know that uh, terrorists uh, would like to use whatever way or means they can to uh, inflict harm on us. And therefore... You know, uh, as 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 a category to uh, of concerns, you know, uh, uh, to to make sure that terrorists do not uh, uh, use our immigration or our uh, visit uh, visa as a way to come in. I mean, we, during the of course, so, uh, but that's different this, than assuming that everyone right. Was a, well, no, of, of course, of, that of would, Muslim you know, faith. That would be. that is where where I made my point uh, with him that uh, um, and more sharply focused uh, on terrorists and extremists is the, is, is the right approach. During this, uh, the, 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 the Soviet period, uh, you know, I came here initially as a, uh, uh, as a student, you had to sign documents and be vetted whether you had any communist affiliations and, uh, and, and so forth, whether you had ever joined a communist party. I mean, something, uh, I'm, this is well beyond my area of expertise. We're talking about immigration that is vetted with regard to terrorism or extremism relationship. That uh, that makes sense. But to say that, uh, that uh, to, to have a category as broad as all Muslims, that obviously would not serve did the you national view interest it as and an, would be did, inconsistent with the, you think our he, values. Do you think that was motivated by national security concerns or was it motivated by politics? 
Well, I don't know. I don't do politi- internal politics, uh, so you would be a better judge on that. Uh, I, I, uh, I thought uh, that uh, it was motivated by national security concerns. At least that's the impression I got. Uh, it wasn't uh, in terms of Islam being alien to America and we don't want them here. That sort of issue it was the issue of, of terrorism and extremism. Well, Ambassador, it's great to have you here. Fascinating. Uh, the book is The Envoy from Kabul to the White House, My Journey Through a Turbulent World. Uh, a great read uh, and such an interesting life. Well, th- thank you, David. It's a great pleasure to be here at the University of Chicago. Congratulations on this great institute. Thank you. Come back and, often. And I, I look forward to that. Thank, thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.